0: Well happy Sunday, (laughs) 20 years ago on October 23rd, the world changed, didn't know it, but, but the world changed, a seed for world change was sown on October 23rd, 20 years ago. Anybody remember what happened? No, not Facebook, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Afghanistan, Afghanistan, no? Steve? No. No. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Um, 20 years ago yesterday and all of you are benefiting from it how quickly we forget you looked it up I saw you on your phone, you weren't texting. <laughs> yes, 20 years ago, the iPod was released. Music in your pocket. Yeah, and, and now the great thing about it is I've got more music in my pocket. If I played every song on my playlist, not on my playlist, if I played every song in my library, I wouldn't get through all my songs for 18 years, playing 24 hours a day. Every Tuesday, new music is released. So I go through every new album, jazz, classical, rock, pop, Christian, and I listen and I find new artists and I create a new playlist every year. Playlist 2021, Playlist 20, Playlist 2019. And the whole thing is that I can't even get through 2021 yet with all the music I've added. So now I've gone to, to just saying, hey, Shlomo, play, play music from my library. And so it's just these random selections from my library. And sometimes there'll be a song that comes out and I go, I chose that that's terrible <laughs> delete delete you know and then there's other times where honestly it's it's music i have completely forgotten about and it could be a newer song it could be an older piece but it's it's an artist and a song that i have completely forgotten about my first reaction is one joy at hearing the music, but then the second part is, how could I have ever forgotten this artist and just and then I start diving deeper into the library and the, that I have around that artist and and it just it, that music has always had this capacity to fill my life and so there's, a, there's i don 't know about you does when you hear a song. Do you have songs that are tied to memories? And and if you hear that song, it takes you back to a time and a place, recent or distant. For me, sometimes a song will remind me of a forgotten habit. Or it will remind me of, I remember when I used to do this. and, And then the question is, why don't I do this any longer? not tied to age, it's not tied to anything, it's just, I forgot. I forgot. And so the great thing about these random selections that Shlomo, I don't want to say the name, chooses to play for me is, is that they, they remind me sometimes of forgotten ways. And this morning, uh, I want us to visit, uh, pastors Larissa and Vince asked me to kind of close off the series On prayer, with talking about confession. And I can tell you that going through most, visiting most churches and in most gatherings, it's a forgotten prayer, Uh, the, the, the prayer confession. And so I want us to look at a passage out of the scripture that talks about the importance of it. And then I want us, then I want to reflect with you six reasons why Christian communities together and then as a continuation of that during the week, why we should practice uh, the spiritual discipline of confession um, together. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, in whatever form you carry it, uh, I'm going to be in Luke chapter 19. Val, can I ask you just to pull the volume down or the echo down a little bit? Thank you. So I'm going to be in uh, Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 9. And Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all I get, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, Father, we pray that this morning you would soften our hearts to be reminded again of the great grace that is available to all of us when we sincerely confess the realities of sin in our lives and the attendant freedom that comes when your Holy Spirit testifies, that once again your grace prevails upon us. So we pray in Jesus' name that you would open up our hearts and minds this morning to hear your shepherd's voice. Together as a community and personally, we would all have a sense that you have spoken with us this morning. So we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's there's characters in the story. Jesus is telling a story that is primarily aimed at this religious group known as the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees never called themselves Pharisees. They, they called themselves Habarot, which in Hebrew means brothers. And they lived in communities of brothers. But because of the way in which they lived their lives and held themselves separate from everybody else, That's where the name Pharisee came from because the people around them called themselves separated ones. But the thing about this that we we have to remember is that for those of you who who are familiar with the Gospels, the Pharisees are kind of the bad guys of the Gospels. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are kind of the bad guys, but the reality is, is that there would have been no Jewish faith around for Jesus to speak into if it had not been for the rise of the brothers 400 years basically before the arrival of Jesus, that when the Jews returned from the, to the land of Israel, their faith was a mess. And so this group arose that began to uphold the study of the Torah, and, and they began to teach the Torah, and they began to, to extol the virtues of the Bible, again, for the Jewish people, and so they were, they were reformers in their day. And just as we can point to movements in the history of the church that had been reforming movements in the history of the church and then kind of got ossified in turning their, their methods and their passion for reform into rules, so it was for the Pharisees, so that by the time Jesus is around, you could summarize the teaching of the Pharisees, of the brothers as, for God so loved the world that he gave us one and only Torah, that who should ever study it, quote it, and obey it will live. And in, in having that emphasis, in a sense, what they did is they turned faith into a series of rules that they amplified to make sure that you didn't break the fundamental rules. And so what they began then is a series of, of rules and traditions that functionally put a big hedge around the Torah's teaching so that by keeping you on the other side of the hedge, you didn't risk breaking the regulations that were present in the Torah. And so so by the time Jesus comes along, these were the elite religious teachers of the day. But they put a heavy burden on the people that they were teaching. Now, you couldn't get any further on the spectrum from a Pharisee than to go to a tax collector um, because the tax collector was a collaborator with Rome. The tax collector was, was an official of the state on behalf of the Roman occupying force. They, Rome was really good at raising up indigenous people to be their tax collectors, and so... Matthew, Matthew, who, who became a follower of Jesus, was a tax collector. In the next chapter in Luke, you have Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector. These are wealthy individuals, because when they collected the tax, they could put a percent commission on top of that tax, and the whole thing is that the law was on their side to enforce that you paid that commission as well as the tax owed to Rome. And so... There's notorious stories about uh, unethical tax collectors. And so, again, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that John the Baptist told tax collectors to to collect just what's due, nothing extra. And so th- th- this is a common problem in, in the land at that time. And, and because they worked for Rome, the money that they collected and the money they received was all unclean. So these people are unclean because they... They hold and transact unclean money, and then because the money was unclean, even if they were enti- in, even if they intended to tithe, they couldn't, because that money was considered tainted, stained, unclean, and therefore unfit uh, to present to the Lord. So on one hand, you have the Pharisee, who is this zealous, measured, intentional person, and on the other hand. All the adjectives that the Pharisee prays, swindlers, adulterers, etc., that's that's the picture of the tax collector in, in the Jewish world of the first century. So two completely polar opposite people. And in this very short story, Jesus paints an indelible picture. He says, two men went up to pray because... Prayer is always communal, corporate, before it's ever personal uh, in the Middle Eastern world. Your personal prayer life is a reflection of your, of your community prayer life, not vice versa. In the U.S., everything is vice versa. So, so they, they go up to pray, and the Pharisee prays, and he says, and and it says in the Greek, he prayed to himself. And the whole thing is that, you know what, he probably doesn't know it. Have you ever found yourself thinking you're praying to God... ...and then you catch yourself realizing that you're just reflecting about yourself... ...and how you're thinking about the day? You're really not. Am I the only one who does that? (laughs) Okay, I got a little anxious there. Um, So so he goes in and he starts praying... ...and and he goes, thank you, Lord. That was the last three good words of that prayer. He goes, thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men... And you just get the feeling like he's scanning the room. I'm not like that swindler, that adulterer, or that tax collector over there. I mean, this is more a self-advertisement than it is a prayer. This is who I am, and this is who I'm not. On the other hand, the, the tax collector can't even lift his head up, which doesn't mean a whole lot to us because for some reason, I don't know the history of this, in the West we got in the habit of bowing our head in prayer. Uh, In first century Israel, they lifted their head when they prayed. There's nothing down here, your only hope is up there, right? So so why would you pray down here when your hope is up there? So, So when it says that he couldn't even lift his head to pray... He he was so overcome with the sin, he couldn't pray in a conventional way. His his prayer was more a lament, an expression of grief, than it was the the conventional prayer. And so it says he couldn't even physically lift his head to heaven. He was so ashamed. And then he beats his chest, which again, that's not an American thing. (laughs) I think our anxiety would go up if people next to us when we pray, when Chris or Vince or Brittany leads us in prayer, if the person next to us just bowed their head and started going like this. I I don't know, my anxiety level would go up a little bit. Again, I might be the only one more extroverted than I am, but, um, but the beating of the chest, that's a woman thing. Women beat their chest in first century Israel. Men, real men, don't beat the chest. So now, we've got a guy who can't even look up, is down, and he's beating his chest like a woman. And all he does is cry out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that that man is the one who left the temple precinct Justified, And that word justified doesn't just mean forgiven, it, it, it carries with it the understanding that no more repentance is necessary today. And so he, he leaves. He leaves justified. And the Pharisee who reads the scriptures, who tithes, who fasts twice a week, did you know that... In the Jewish world at that time, fasting is only required one day a year. There's no teaching in the Old Testament asking the people of God to fast once a week or twice a week. This is something that they chose to do. But it kind of become a rule for them. And so this man who is disciplined, intentional, ...zealous, knows the scriptures probably better than anybody else in the room... ...unless there's other Pharisees there that day. He does not leave justified. So let's add to the story. Next week, the tax collector leaves... And he's so relieved to get the burden of sin and shame off of his chest, but Monday comes around and something happens that's a trigger in his life. So he starts running around with fast women again, and he's got a $165,000 bottle of Remy Martin black label on his back seat of his $125,000 Mercedes car, and he's just back into living the life. But he returns for prayer the next week. And he cries out in the same way. It's not an act, he cries out in the exact same way. What does Jesus say this time? Two weeks later he comes back, had a few good days, three or, three or four good days, but came back, had another trigger and just got back in his car and said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kick some butt this week. I'm owed, I mean it is a, but he returns to the temple overcome with shame and convicted of sin What does Jesus say to him that week? Six weeks later, he comes back, and he's been reading his Torah every day. He's praying and he's fasting twice a week. He's thrown out his expensive scotch. He's sold his car and given it to the poor. His life is completely cleaned up. What does God say to him now? You see, one of my concerns is is that it's it's easy for us to read that story and if we forecast it into the future, it's easy at least for me to want him to return almost with the with the Pharisee's speech in his pocket. Because we don't know what to do with authentic confession of sin. a sinful awareness that requires consistent communication before God. Because the whole thing with the Pharisee's prayer isn't so much that he's not like other people, it's the sense that because I have done these things, God owes me. That because I've done all these things and I do good works of righteousness... I have a full deck of cards and I can play God now. I can play with God now. And what God is saying through the story is that nobody has a full deck. Confession is just the response of the gracious invitation to be reconciled with God and and have his grace wash over our lives. And I go so far as to say that when we fail to have this discipline, I'm not afraid to use the word ritual, of, con- of confession, we've lapsed into delusion and, and unreality. And maybe even lapsed into this understanding that, that our relationship with God is transactional. I do this, so you'll do this. If you want me to do this, I'll do this, so then you'll do that. Confession, I'm convinced, keeps our faith personal. I want to give you six reasons why I think confession is significant. First is it roots us in reality. That's what I am. I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're, we're all sinners. There's never a time when we're not. I mean, I, I love the prayer of confession when we pray and we confess Lord, forgive me for the things that I've done as well as the things that I haven't done. The opportunities to love that I withheld. The opportunities to communicate grace that I withheld. The opportunity to engage, but because it would trespass my own sense of convenience, I didn't engage. The words I said and the words I didn't say. Sometimes silence is golden, and other times silence is brutal. And so a people who forget confession of sin in their community prayer life, in their, in their personal prayer life, we're running the risk of living in an unrealed, in an unreal, unreal world. Because the reality is, is that, that I am a 24-7. And if and when I forget that, it's to my detriment. It's who I am. Um, I don't like the language of broken, because we are broken, and some of that breaking is not our fault. It's it's the sin of the world breaking against us, and so. We grow up in fa- broken families, and that broken family breaks us in some way that we never chose. But to simply use the word "broken," I think, leads us into a passive territory that that kind of muddies the sense of brokenness that I'm responsible for. I just finished reading a book, and it wasn't written by a Christian. In fact, the person's an ardent atheist. But he he made this observation, he said the human creature is the only creature on the planet that chooses self-harm. That's a sign of our brokenness, but we can break ourselves by the choices we make. And my fear is confessing that I'm broken might not be simply confessing it might simply be a confession of that I'm a victim. I perceive myself as a victim. Rather than confessing like this man, oh God, have mercy on me, cuz I'm a sinner. I I might be a victim in some areas, but I am the agent in most of them. And that prayer confession it roots us in reality. This is the world in which Mark Slomka inherits. The Mark Slomka that inherits and lives and resides in this world is a sinner in daily need of grace and forgiveness. And I'm not embarrassed by that. I'm not ashamed by that. I'm I'm grateful for it. Secondly, it it roots us in reality. Secondly, it births an unconscious humility... And it mitigates hostility towards others. When I was a relatively new Christian I would hear old people make this comment, there but for the grace of God go I. And honestly I was too young a Christian to understand really what what they were describing and what they were saying but It was this understanding that when you look at someone who appears to be making horrible choices is the recognition if it wasn't for the grace of God in my life, I would be making those same choices. I'm no different, but there but for the grace of God working in my life go I. And the only way you stay in touch with that is through confession. If it's not for the grace of God operating my life, I hate to think about what my life would look like today. I look over my life and I I constantly think how did I get here? How did I land in such pleasant places? These experiences, these opportunities, how did this happen? When I look around me and I see that it's not happening in the lives of so many. And the answer is, there but for the grace of God go I. Can't be hostile to other people who are making horrific decisions because there but for the grace of God go I. So it bursts in unconscious humility. It's not like you can never I remember years ago at the first church I pastored, we were interviewing candidates for for youth pastor, and I and I asked this guy, What are your gifts? And he said, Well, I have the gift of humility. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong answer. <laughs> yeah. Humility is something I think that God unconsciously cultivates in us. And you don't know whether you have it or not. It's for other people to estimate. It's kind of like fast food. I don't eat at restaurants. I'm not fast food. I love fast food. Um, Fine food. I don't eat at restaurants to have that neon sign in the window that says fine food. Because I always feel like that's not for that restaurant to say. That's for Yelp or other peer review things to say that place has killer burritos or that place, You know, it's not for the restaurant to say. I distrust a restaurant that has to put fine food in the window because I feel like that's, that's going to be a bait and switch. You know, <laughs> after you look at the menu. Anyway, anyways, but but this prayer confession it cultivates unconsciously within us a humility that mitigates that wars against. Hostility towards others. Thirdly, it anchors us in God's mercy. Confession rehearses and represents the gospel every time we pray. Because Christ died for us, for the forgiveness of sins. As It's one of my favorite passages in the, in the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says that, that God made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to become Sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. Every time I pray a prayer of confession, I am rehearsing the gospel. Because there's, there's, there's nothing wonderful about praying and confessing to God your sin if there's not the promise of his grace and kindness. As it, as it says, It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to confession. Fourth, it unifies a community in Jesus. How can a community in Christ attack one another when we exist, live, and breathe within the common and the expensive grace of God in Jesus Christ? Throughout the New Testament Scriptures, there's this understanding that we were bought with a price. Through the mystery of grace, we we were acquired at the cost of Jesus Christ. So if we're a bought community, if, if, if we're a community that's been redeemed... The, through a common and expensive grace of God, then we have this common awareness of the deep grace of God. That doesn't it doesn't mean that we won't have conflict. But it but it does mean that we shouldn't be easily divided. And we certainly shouldn't have hostility amongst us. I mean, if we're praying and we're, we're like the tax collector, and, and we're genuine and we're saying together as a community, God have mercy on us. And it's heartfelt for all of us. And we all are aware that, that, that you know, it's, the grace of God is not like birdies in a nest trying, fighting for the, that one worm and only you know, certain ones are going to get it. I mean, God is abundant in His grace and this community that cries out to Him with deep awareness that the gospel is available to us afresh together as a community. Explain to this little Jewish boy who's still trying to figure out why the church is imploding around the country over a piece of cloth on our face. I mean, what what is going on here? Church imploding over human kingdoms that are going to disappear like dust. I'm convinced it's because the deep awareness of our sin hasn't broken us yet. And forgetting this prayer, I mean, maybe it's just how I was raised, maybe it's just how I think, maybe it's just how I see, but I can tell you that when we pray together and I hear that sinner's prayer, that prayer confession coming from the lips of the person on my right and left and in front of me and behind me, I am deeply aware that I share more in common with that person through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross than I do with anybody no matter what the social matrix is and demographic and psychographics and everything else yeah. but i have more in common with that woman or man who is crying out for the grace of god than i do with members of my own family who don't know him because don't confuse a shared memory for communion with Christ. Communion with Christ that we hold in common when we pray that prayer together forges a link if prayed sincerely and from the heart that in God's eyes, I believe, is greater than the common affinities that you might have with other family members, friends, co-workers, office mates. Affinities are strong. But either we are united together as a people with other people through the blood of Jesus Christ, or we're not. And every time I'm reading the Gospel of John and I see by your love for one another the world will come to know me, I just shudder to think of the revelation of Jesus Christ that's coming through people that are calling themselves Christian right now. Because largely we've forgotten that prayer. When we sing worship songs, there's certain lyrics and worship songs that are written for a season of life, a season of experience that we're going through, and you might be coming here, and, and there's words that go up on the screen, and you kind of say, you know, I can sing them, but that's not where I am right now. But When we confess our sin together as a church, that's where we all are if we're living in reality. So it unifies a community in Jesus. Fifth, It reminds us of the justice and judgment of God. God loves people. God hates sin. Because sin harms people. Harms us. Harms others around us. If God is all-loving, he has to exercise judgment to restore justice for people. And so there is going to be a judgment. When Jesus Christ returns, there is going to be a judgment. But what he promises us is that the posture of confession, coming under the benefits of the cross of Jesus Christ, it's like painting the, the blood on the lentils during the Passover for the Jews, that, that that the angel of death passes over. Are the people in the house perfect? Absolutely not. Are they sin-free? Absolutely not. Are they frequently weak and double-minded? Absolutely. And yet there's something about the simple posture of placing your your community, your family, your household under that blood on the doorpost that the angel bringing ultimate judgment passes over. And I know that when we think about judgment, it's, it's, it's easy to have these archaic medieval you know, ink sketches and things of monsters and demons and all these apocalyptic images. I have no idea what it's going to look like. And neither do you. I don't know who's going to be judged and who's not, and neither do you. But that doesn't mean that there's not going to be one. Because, how could Jesus Christ return and ignore? I mean, to say there's no judgment means that you're saying that that God and His love for people is going to ignore the very thing that's destroying them. I'm not a partner in His plan for judgment, I only know that there's going to be one. I'm a co worker with Him for redemption. We are never co workers with Him for sovereignty. And so, sin of confession reminds me, I mean, honestly, it's pretty binary for me personally. I can not confess this sin, and therefore, that which I don't confess is subject to his just judgments. Or I can put myself in a position before him that just acknowledges, I, I'm such a complete sinner, I don't even know everything I should be confessing right now. I'm unconscious. Sometimes, I, get, I don't know about you, but I, I kind of get anxious that what I'm choosing, aware of, to confess to him isn't the things I should really be telling him. But I don't know what I should really be telling him. And it bothers me that I could be unconscious about the things that I should really be expressing. Because he's a a loving God, but dear ones, he's just. And I want his justice to work on me and through me. And so we confess. And finally, confession repositions us for mission. If we really identify we're sinners, then is there really that much difference between us and anybody else in the world? When Carol and I first moved to San Diego, we were making about $300, the equivalent of about $300 a month in England. And that was enough for us. We could tithe on that. And, and our housing was paid for in the ministry we were part of. And because we were on the road so much, we didn't have to buy daily groceries and things. And so when, when we moved to San Diego uh, to pastor a church in La Jolla, we were told we were going to get paid $1,800. And it was like, oh, my gosh we'll probably be able to to give 50% of that. We had no idea about the cost of living in San Diego. The church didn't have offices, so we needed to have an office in our home. We were expecting our first child, and we had felt called to have an open home uh, and and have a room that we could host people in and, and things. Well, you could not find a home to rent in the La Jolla, UC, Claremont area that would keep us on budget. And I remember going up to the Soledad Cross. It was a beautiful, crystal clear, no haze in the sky, San Diego day, and and I'm up there moaning Before the Lord. I don't know why you brought us back here from England. I never wanted to leave, but here we are. I mean, it's just like your typical whiny prayer. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, I mean, (laughs) I never wanted to leave, and now we, you know, we're having a child, and and I'm meant to be a provider, and I'm not providing, and everything's kind of upside down, and and I'm just kind of going on and on about how poor we are and things. And I felt the Lord say to me, look south. And because it was such a crystal clear day, you could see the hills of Tijuana and the white dots of housing off in the distance and things. And, and in one of the clearest conversations I've ever had, I, I felt the Lord say this to me. Do you think the people in Mexico see a difference in kind between you and La Jolla, or do you think at best they might see a small fractional difference of degree? Because I was whining about first world problems. And I walked away from that realizing it was at best a fractional Difference of degree, not the difference in kind that I was moaning about. I made a lot of resolutions coming off that time. But you see, confession positions us for mission because we know there's very little that separates us from people who don't yet call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. The difference is the grace of God, but, but we misuse that grace if we allow it to separate us from people who don't know Jesus yet. Because the only thing that, that makes me different from someone who doesn't know Jesus yet is the, is the gift of my faith. who he is, who I've grown to recognize him to be. Otherwise, there's fundamentally no different. I could be as hostile and tolerant, as polarizing as the next person. Short-sighted, selfish, self-centered, frightened, anxious as the next person. But this prayer confession, it, it reminds me there's really nothing else that really distinguishes me. The difference in kind is Jesus, not me. And the prayer confession reminds us that we've been forgiven much. And Jesus says, Those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. When I was reflecting on that this week, I just wrote the following. If we've been forgiven little, then we will forgive little. The forgiven little life is a shallow, hollow, hostile life that constantly distances itself from the world around us. The forgiven little life isolates itself in like-minded affinities that shuns those who do not meet the standard the forgiven little people set the forgiven little community will see itself as a victim in need of a hero, powerless to influence, yet with a deluded sense of their own significance and afraid of a changing present and uncertain future. On the other hand, the forgiven much community, while messy, is alive with joy and gratitude, wanting to share with others about the man who knows everything about me but chose to forgive me. I don't know about you, I want to be part of a forgiven much community. And then we'll be like that woman who had that conversation at the well that had five husbands, and when she met the grace of Jesus Christ, she went back into the town and said, Come meet a man who knows everything about me and chose to forgive me. The forgiven much community, that's our cry, that's our voice. Let me me introduce you to a man who, who knows me better than any of you know me and he still chose to forgive me. Let us express deeds of love and kindness on earth as it is in heaven because we met a man who knows everything about us. And knowing everything about us, he still chose to forgive us. That prayer confession the great thing about it too is I remember the first time I went to a church that had it as part of its worship and and I was a new believer I was just kind of reading the bible for myself and and things and and looking at all these people and they they were carrying bibles I never knew could be that thick and I mean these were bible toting people I mean Bibles that I think could induce a hernia if you weren't careful in how you bend it, pick it up and stuff. But, and I'm just feeling outclassed, out of my element, still confused about all of this. But I want to tell you, when that service started and we recited together this prayer confession, it put all the treasures of the Christian faith within my reach. And to hear everyone around me confessing that prayer together, for me, I could relate to that. And I could feel welcome there. And so it is that the church that is postured that way, we can welcome anyone we can engage with everyone without fear or anxiety, because ultimately the rest of our life is dedicated to, let me introduce you to a man who knows everything about me. The prayer confession reminds me of that, convicts me of that, in Jesus' name.